Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. Right now, Steve is exploring the important prophecy term, the Son of God. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello, and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In today's program, we're going to continue to explore the scriptures that help us better better understand the use of the term, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. And this is the capitalized use of that term so that we know that we're talking about Jesus Christ. And we are, uh, uh, (laughs) excuse me, we are comparing and contrasting this with the term the Son of God, the Son of God. And uh, one other point to be made about the Son of Man is to make the point that it is capitalized, knowing that particularly in the Old Testament, when we talk about prophets such as Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and so forth, they are referred to as son of man, but it's lowercase. In this case, we're talking about the uppercase use of the term, the son of man, which is uh, applying to Jesus Christ. And we are comparing and contrasting this with son of God to show you that it's important that we understand the difference, because many people tend to, when they read their Bible, read over these terms thinking that there's no difference, that it's, yes, it is Jesus, but that there are significant understandable differences between them. And that's why we're spending so much time in this series uh, on important prophecy terms. We're looking at seven sets of terms, and the first set uh, deals with the Son of God and the Son of Man. And in our last program, we were in the book of Luke, the book of Luke in the New Testament, Luke uh, chapter 22. So let's go there and read this one more time to get context and flow, and then we'll look at Mark and Matthew, who have parallel passages, so that we get a good understanding, because we're finding in these three passages, the uh, Mark, Luke, and Matthew passages, the use of both the term, the Son of Man, and the Son of God. So hopefully when we finish this um, review right here in the Scripture— that you'll have an even clearer understanding of the significant difference between these two terms. So let's go to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, and look at verses 66 to 71, 66 to 71. Verse 66, when it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, And they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God, then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Verse 71. 
Then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Now the context here, to quickly go over that again, and it's the same context that, context that will apply as we look at the Mark passage in Mark 14 and the Matthew passage in Matthew 26. And again, these scriptures are all on your worksheet available from the radio station. That this is the um, council getting together after Judas has betrayed Christ to the Romans and to the leadership of the Jewish people, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and it's the council that he's standing before where they're asking him these questions, are you the son of God? And he refers to himself as the son of man. Now remember in our study back in the, um, the section on the son of God, we went to the book of John where it made it very clear that the son of God is uh, the aspect or manifestation of Jesus, if you will, where he is coming with rewards. He is not coming to judge sin. Contrast that in the same passage in John, where we uh, see the Son of Man coming to judge, and he's coming to judge sin. So those who do not believe him as being of uh, virgin birth with the Holy Spirit and his mother Mary, with, his, uh, with Joseph not being involved at all, therefore he is pure, he is sinless, and does not have the fallen nature of Adam and therefore can be the perfect sacrifice. If they do not see him as that man, as the Son of God, then they see him as the Son of Man. And the point is being made here by Jesus to these people, the council of elders of the people. This is the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes that we're going to be seeing enumerated in detail as we look at the Mark and Matthew passages. These are the ones who want Jesus done away with because they see him as a direct threat to their authority. And, you know, you might ask yourself, how can they do that if they understand the Old Testament, where Jesus, uh, even though he was a mystery, uh, in, in name at least, uh, they knew just about everything else about him, where he, where he would be born, when he would be born, how he would be born, uh, the fact that he would be king in the line of David, uh, that he would be uh, crucified before that uh, and raised on the third day. They would have known all that, and in some cases may even have known that from a mental construct perspective as an academic exercise, if you will. But that knowledge never made it into their hearts. It never made it into their faith, if you will. So they refused to see him for who he was, the prophesied Messiah, the prophesied Son of God, so therefore, Jesus in verse 69 of Luke 22 says, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. What he's basically saying is from now on, Jesus is going to be to you, council of elders, Sanhedrin, Pharisees, scribes, unbelievers, I'm going to be your judge. I'm going to sit on my throne and I'm going to judge you. So you can see that while they're asking, are you the son of God, and they're denying that he is, they're looking for him to say, yes, I am, so that they can have him crucified for blasphemy, which, of course, we get out of the book of Leviticus as um, anyone who declares themselves to be God 
who isn't God, therefore is guilty of blasphemy and is um, worthy of the death penalty. So that's what they're looking for here. That's what they got here because that's what they wanted to hear. They weren't evaluating the merits of the case. We know that. Uh, They were evaluating him based on what they wanted, and that was to get rid of him. So he's basically saying, because I am the son of man, that's the way you see me, I will therefore be seated at the right hand of my father, and I will judge you if they had only seen him as the son of God. So let's look at a parallel passage now, if we'll. And so let's go back to the left in our Bible. Let's go back to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, and we want to go to verse 60. Mark chapter 14, and we're going to start with verse 60. And again, this is a parallel passage to what we just read in Luke 22. And when we finish Mark, we'll look at a a third parallel passage. So we've got three of the four Gospels that specifically review this this, um, instance because it's it's very, very important. Uh, in the flow of events here, in the flow of understanding of who Christ was and who they, who they said that he was. So in Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 60, it says, The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? Verse 61, But he, Jesus, kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Verse 62, And Jesus said, I am. And you, referring back to the high priest and all those sitting in attendance there to accuse him, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Verse 63, Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? Verse 64, And you have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him, they all condemned Jesus to be deserving of death. So we see a couple of things here that I want to point out just for clarification before we get into the the actual subject at hand here, the differentiation between Son of Man and Son of God, is when we look at verse 61, if you look at the end there, it says, are you the Son, or excuse me, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And here we need to understand that eight times, eight times in the New Testament, God is referred to as the blessed one. So you may look at this and say, wait a minute, the son of God term is nowhere in this passage. Well, actually it is. It's right there, the son of the blessed one. In other words, another way of saying it is the son of God. So I wanted to clarify that, again, because the term son of God is not obviously there. And the other thing that I found interesting, I just wanted to highlight for you, is in verse 63, and it says, the high priest tearing his clothes. And I don't have it in the uh, the worksheet here, but it's uh, some a point of interest if you're interested in looking it up for yourself. If you go to the book of Leviticus, way back in the Old Testament in the five books that Moses wrote, and go to Leviticus chapter 21 and look at verse 10, 
it tells you in the Levitical, in the law, that the high priest was forbidden to tear his clothing, was forbidden to tear his clothing. So we see here that the high priest, who of course is acting uh, totally out of character here anyway, as he is denying who the Christ is, and the high priest uh, uh, of anyone should have known who Jesus was but denied him, uh, is tearing his clothes here, so further bringing condemnation on himself from the perspective of Jesus as the judge and, of course, as God the Father. So let's go to look at uh, 62, where the real meat of this passage is. And Jesus said, I am, I am the Son of God. So he's acknowledging to this um, audience of um, condemners, if you will, I am. And then he makes two key statements. And he says, and you, referring to the audience, shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. It's interesting that these are two separate and distinct events separated by a long, long period of time, thousands of years. Now, let me explain here. He's talking to an audience who does not believe that he is the Son of God. They believe that he was born of Joseph and Mary, therefore he's the Son of a man. Um, and they say, and, and Jesus says, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. When these people, 2,000 years ago, when this council of elders, as they're called, back in Luke 22, if you recall, when this council of elders ultimately sees Jesus at the judgment, this is going to be the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. So relative to them, they were going to see Jesus 3,000 years later. So 2,000 years from the time of Christ to now, and then the millennial kingdom to come shortly, I, I really believe, coming shortly, then there's a thousand years, and then all the unbelievers of all time are going to stand before the great white throne to be judged by the Son of Man, because this is the manifestation of Christ, if you will, that brings the judgment, whereas the Son of God manifestation of Christ brings the rewards. And those are two different aspects of Christ, and, we, and the purpose that we are trying to fulfill here and spending so much time going over so many scriptures is to make that key point that there is that distinctive difference between rewards and punishment. And you can tell by the use of the terms son of God or son of man, what's being talked about. So here it's talking about judgment because these people are clearly unbelievers and he's telling them, that you are going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power when he judges you, and it's basically at the great white throne judgment. Then there's the second part of verse 62, and it says, and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, when does he come with the clouds of heaven? Jesus comes with the clouds of heaven at his second coming. There is uh, the clouds of heaven when he comes to the atmosphere for the church. He does not come down to the earth. That's the rapture of the righteous church. That's the Son of God. But the Son of Man is coming in the clouds, and we'll talk about that a little bit later 
when we get into another passage in Matthew that clearly describes this, that this is talking about the second coming when Jesus is going to judge all the Jews that are living at the time that he comes, all the Jews that make it through the seven-year tribulation period, which is yet 2,000 years um, forward or in the future from when he's making the statement to these people. So he's saying, you specifically, Jews, that are standing here in front of me, you're going to see me 3,000 years from now at the great white throne judgment when I'm sitting on my throne. But your offspring, the generations of Jews yet to come, because you are refusing to see me as the Son of God, you continue to believe that I'm a son of a man, therefore I'm going to judge those in your generation yet future who are going to be alive at my second coming, and that's when I'm going to judge them. So he's talking about two different judgments, both dealing with Jews, but two different periods of time. So I I pray that you can see that distinctive difference there, that those people that are there judging him are not going to see him at his right hand of power on his throne and also see him coming with the clouds. That's events. Those events are separated by thousands of years. So hopefully you see that as he makes the distinction between son of man and son of God in this uh, particular passage. All right, let's move on to the book of Matthew. So we've seen this passage with some detail in Luke chapter 22. We've now seen it with some more detail in Mark chapter 14. So now let's go to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, and let's look at verses 63, 63 to 65. And it says, but Jesus kept silent. Matthew 26, 63, Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you. So he's basically, in an authoritative way, kind of badgering him, pleading with him. I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Remember in the last passage in Mark, it was Son of the Blessed One. Now it's telling us very clearly this is Christ, the Son of God. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Verse 65, Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. Uh, Verse 66, What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. So you see that distinction right there between the Son of Man, whom they are going to see at the great white throne judgment, And also he's telling your offspring who also will unbelieve or disbelieve that I am the Son of God, I will judge them at my second coming when I come in the clouds. So we're going to explore that a little bit further, and we're going to transition uh, our look at the Son of Man from being totally a uh, judging uh, God to a God who also forgives sin. So he's calling himself the Son of Man, but he will also be forgiving sin. And we want to look at that aspect as we look in Acts chapter 7 
in our next program. But now we want to transition, as we always do, over to our Q&A, and we have been following along uh, for a while now in what we're uh, lightly calling our mini-series Q&A that has to do with the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit functions in the Bible. And we spent some time going through that and how we're now zeroing in on the tribulation period, which is really the focus of uh, Rich's question, Rich uh, from Indian Springs, and the functioning of the Holy Spirit in the tribulation. And I was uh, making the point uh, in our last program, we'll carry forward here from Ezekiel chapter 33, so if you'll con- you'll start turning to Ezekiel 33, to make the point that the manifestation, the functioning, if you will, of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is going to be the same way he functions in the tribulation. Let me say that again. The way the Holy Spirit functioned in the Old Testament will be the way that he functions in the tribulation. Both of those are different from how he functions today during what we call the church age, the age of grace. And this was the church that started in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, and the church will terminate, if you will, when the church is taken to heaven. And all of those from Acts chapter, 20, Acts chapter 2 in the Pentecost, all those that have died in Christ up to the point of the rapture, everyone will be taken to heaven at that point, and that will be the sealing of the church, if you will. And the Holy Spirit during the church age came on you and then in you, and never would leave you. And went through a number of scriptures to make that point. He comes on you and in you and never leaves you. Contrast that with the Old Testament where he would come on you, but not in you. In other words, the Holy Spirit did not permanently indwell uh, people, even righteous people in the Old Testament. They could stay with, he could stay with an individual for a good part of the lifetime, but it had to do with the maintenance of their righteousness. And we went to Ezekiel 33 to make that point. So let's go to Ezekiel, and then we'll look at um, a New Testament passage to show you that how the Holy Spirit functions in Ezekiel 33, an Old Testament book, for instance functions as well during the tribulation. Remember, the church is now removed from the earth so that the tribulation can begin. And at the beginning of the tribulation and throughout the tribulation, the Holy Spirit will uh, go back to functioning the way he did, uh, for instance, here in Ezekiel chapter 33. So let's look at that and go to verses 11 through 13. Ezekiel 33, 11 through 13. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Verse 12, And you, son of man, say to your fellow citizens, The righteousness of a righteous man. Let's say that again. The righteousness of a righteous man will not deliver him in the day of his transgression. 
And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he will not stumble because of it in the day when he turns from his wickedness, whereas a righteous man will not be able to live by his righteousness on the day when he commits sin. So hopefully you're seeing as we go through here, and we have one more verse to look at, but you can see as we go through here, your righteousness will not save you if you turn to wickedness. All right, verse 13. When I say to the righteous, he will surely live, and he so trusts in his righteousness that he commits iniquity, none of his righteous deeds will be remembered. But in that same iniquity of which he has committed, he will die. He will die. So you... Uh, and we showed in other passages as well, particularly in First Samuel 16, if you've been following along with us, where it says that the Holy Spirit had come on King Saul, but then the Holy Spirit was taken from him. And the Holy Spirit then came on David and stayed with David. But David prayed, and we found that when we read in Psalm 51, verse 11, David prayed that God would not take his Holy Spirit from him. So the Holy Spirit would come on you when you were righteous, but if in your righteousness you became arrogant and you turned to sin, you turned to iniquity, the Holy Spirit would leave you. And if at the point in time when the Holy Spirit was not dwelling with you uh, and you died, you would go to hell. That's not true of the church. Once you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into you and stays with you. And John 14, and we've read it over and over again in this Q&A, John 14 tells us he will never leave you. He will always be with you. He is your guarantee of full salvation when you see Jesus Christ face to face. So then, now we want to go into the New Testament, and we want to look at the period of time called the Tribulation, And that's addressed in Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 24. And we want to look at um, a couple of verses in Matthew chapter 24, and then we're really going to dig into Matthew 25. I want to talk about the parable of the ten virgins because it's uh, misinterpreted so often. But uh, hopefully as we spend the next, it'll probably take a couple of Q&A programs to do it, but I really want to spend some time there because it it amplifies what we're going to read right now in Matthew 24, verses 13 and 14. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. The end is the end of the tribulation. And I know that this passage has also been studied and analyzed six ways to Sunday, as they say, uh, but oftentimes taken out of context. But in the flow of this whole parable, this passage, which includes chapters 24 and 25, it's all talking about the tribulation period in answer to the apostles' questions of Jesus on the Mount of Olives. And he makes the point that if you endure to the end, you will be saved. You never see that passage applied to the church. So we'll continue that in our next program. Remember, 
If we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.